Okay, so we are continuing uh, justification. We're in chapter 11. And uh, there's a couple things I'd like to do. I want to review a little bit. I also want us to, you know, parallel this with uh, the Reformed Confessions as well. So we're going to see it, how this plays uh, in comparison to Westminster, which we would find it's very similar. Um, and then we'll also uh, look at, at uh, paragraph 5 and 6. And paragraph 5 is dealing with how do we deal with, how do we see justification in light of remaining sin that we still have? Uh, there's the ongoing need for still repentance. And even though the verdict has been declared righteous and we're secure and eternity's been achieved by the work of Christ, there's still a need for confession of sin. And so we'll talk about how does that play a role in light of our justification. And then also with chapter 6, it's just a very brief statement to say is, uh, how, God saved, how God saves us um, as we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone, is the same way God has saved throughout all time and history, right? There's not two ways of salvation. Salvation, there's only one. So uh, let's look at that real quick. Um, let's go ahead and consider kind of the outline here. Justification we've been talking about is the, uh, that doctrine that is crucial, that determines, uh, that we understand that determines how is one made right with God, Right? How is one uh, accepted before God? And justification is a legal declaration that we've been accepted in uh, God's presence by the work of Christ, fully on his work, right? And so paragraph one is the general emphasis of the doctrine. Uh, it's a summary statement of that. And then the rest of the paragraphs have continued to expound what that means. Okay, so we see... Those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins, by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law, passive obedience in his death for the whole and sole righteousness, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is a gift of God. So here we're reminded of the three denials and three affirmations. So what justification is not and the basis of our justification and then what justification is. So we see that it is not by infusing righteousness, but by pardoning, right? So we are pardoned because of the work of Christ. Uh, we also understand this is God's work. He's the one who freely does this. Uh, he does this by his own choosing. We see that the tie-in with the effectual call. Those who God effectually calls, he will justify. And so there's that continual uh, connection there, that unbreakable chain that you find in Romans, that if God's going to elect you, he's going to call you in time and space. He's going to justify you in time and space. So he's going to accomplish these very things as well. Uh, and so justification is continuing on that. We see also here it's not by anything wrought in them, but for Christ's sake alone. So there's nothing we do to uh, merit this. It's not by us becoming righteous that we're justified. It's not by our own obedience that we're justified. 
it's fully on the work of Christ alone. So uh, this has a lot of precedence here because it's these statements, if you're familiar with the Roman Catholic Church and what they believe, this is very much a statement that is saying uh, we're, we're not believing what the Roman Catholic Church says here. Uh, so it's very much clarifying using their words. Uh, they would say, you know, what, what salvation is or what justification is you uh, working within you, gr- you working alongside grace, right? God gives you grace, but you have to work alongside that to, to merit or to do righteousness. And based on that, you working alongside and based on God giving you grace, uh, then you can become justified. But that's not what justification is. That's really merging sanctification and justification together. That's a blurring of the distinctions. So they're saying not by anything wrought in them, not even this, notice, evangelical obedience, but it's by imputing Christ's righteousness, his active and passive obedience to us. That's what is our soul righteousness. Notice the whole and soul righteousness. So we're just receiving and resting on him. Uh, And this is a glorious thing. This is a glorious thing here. So um, another thing that we see is it defines what kind of faith is, resting and receiving his righteousness. by faith, which faith is not of themselves, it's the gift of God. So if we say, what is the condition for salvation? It's faith in Christ. So you have to believe, but faith is something you're given, so the condition's met by God himself. Okay? Uh, Any questions on paragraph one? Yeah, so evangelical, we want to understand. What is evangelical? Well, it's gospel. Even Evangelion means uh, gospel, good news, right? So gospel obedience would be that obedience we do in light of being saved, right? So out of love and gratitude, that's gospel obedience. Legal obedience or judicial obedience, moral obedience, we can say, is that which obedience is required in order to merit something, Right, so do this and live. Uh, that's not what justification is. Justification is Christ did this so that we can live. We rest in him. Okay, so not even the obedience we're commanded to do in scripture, like love uh, uh, because of what he's done for us, right? So because of what the gospel does for us, how we're saved, right? A lot of the epistles emphasize the uh, imperative and indicative. So first comes the indicative, Here's what Christ has done. Then the imperative, it's rooted in the gospel. That's gospel obedience. So you read Ephesians, Paul roots us in who we are in Christ, what he's done for us. We've been adopted in the family of God. Therefore, right, you're to, um, you know, husbands love your wives. Therefore, you're to work hard. Therefore, you're, you know, there's a lot of commands we're called to do as Christians, which we can say is gospel or evangelical obedience. And this, this statement here is to say that has nothing to do with your justification. We're called to do that, right? But in light of your justification, in light of your right standing with God, that plays no role whatsoever. Um, that's the fruit of true justification. Um, it's Rather, it's Christ's righteousness. So I want us to look at, um, if you have your Westminster Confession in the Pew Bible, and if you have your confession of faith out. There's really, as you go back and remember, there are three confessions uh, 
that the Baptists had on the table as they're writing this, their 1689. And so it's good to just go back and remember what these are. So there was the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was written in 1946. Sorry, uh, 1646. Uh, you have Savoy, which was written a few years later. That was the Congregationalist. And then you also had their first London confession. That's the confession they wrote when there wasn't other confessions to base it off of. There are other things out there. But then they had those three, and they had their King James Bible out, and they're looking at these things, and they're trying to make statements that they say, this is what we affirm, we believe the Bible says. Now we want to do it in a way that uh, everybody else can affirm. And so it shows that we're reformed but it's also showing that we're also distinct. We're Baptists, too. And so in paragraph one, you can see it's pretty much word for word um, what is what we're said. There's one thing that is added, and it's Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience unto his death for their whole and soul righteousness. That's added, and the reason that's added is that was written by the Savoy Declaration. And so the Baptist just so said, you know, we want to further clarify what we mean by uh, the obedience of Christ. And so we like how Savoy worded this. So we're going to go, we're going to add active and passive obedience. So they didn't come up with that. That's with the Savoy Declaration. So those like John Owen, uh, who wrote that, um, the Baptist chose, let's add that. But everything else uh, in paragraph one is exactly the same. There's nothing spe- special about the doctrine of justification that's unique to the Baptist. The reform, broadly, all affirm this is what it means. Okay? Looking at paragraph two. Paragraph two, right? And we said, what is faith? Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification, yet is not alone, and the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but works by love. Again, word for word from Westminster and uh, 1689, and also uh, Savoy. So they all agreed on this. Um, And and this is very good. This is saying, what is our alone instrument in justification? It's faith. Faith is something that God does for us. It is a gift, and it's the instrument or the tool by which God justifies us. Faith is that which is resting and receiving on Christ. Faith is not faithfulness. In other words, our merits or our obedience, faith is resting and receiving. When it comes to justification, that's what all the Reformed have affirmed. That's what, not just Reformed, that's what the Protestants reformed. This is, this is what made the Protestant Reformation, was this doctrine of justification. Okay? So faith is that alone instrument, but, again, we know, how do we know what true faith is? Well, true faith manifests itself in fruit, True faith has fruit. So it says, therefore, this faith is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with other saving graces and is no dead faith, but works by love. Again, there's that key, works by love. Love out of gratitude for what Christ has done. No no basis for your justification. That's resting and receiving Christ. But because you love Christ, you want to obey him. Because you have been brought into the family, because you have been given salvation, because you have been given eternal life, you want to show your love and gratitude for him by obeying him, by doing good deeds, by doing evangelical obedience. But like paragraph one says, that has no basis for your righteousness before God. It's resting in Christ. 
Okay, so faith is the alone instrument, but it's never alone, right? We're going to get into that in James in chapter 2. But then we see paragraph 3. Paragraph 3 talks about, okay, how was this actually accomplished? What was the legal parameters that actually had to happen? God, being a righteous and holy judge, had to punish sin. And in so doing, what did he do? He sent Christ. Christ achieved our justification. He he paid our debt. So paragraph 3, Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those who are justified and did by the sacrifice of himself and the blood of his cross, undergoing in their stead the penalty due on them, make a proper, real, and full satisfaction of God's justice in their behalf, yet inasmuch as he was given by the Father for them and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead and both freely, not for anything, in them, again, emphasizing that, their justification is only a free grace that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. So this one, again, a lot of weight in this one. We went through, I think, two weeks just on this one paragraph. Again, comparing it with Westminster, pretty much word for word, there's this one sentence that has been added, which is this, by the sacrifice of himself, and the blood of his cross undergoing in their stead the penalty due them. Again, this is something the Baptists took from Savoy and just said, hey, we really like how they articulated this. Let's add this in our confession as well. But all that's being said is we want to further emphasize that Christ's blood had to be shed. It's not saying that Westminster disagreed with this. It's just saying the, the Congregationalists wanted to emphasize that. The Baptists said, let's go with that. We like that. So how did he justify us? The sacrifice of himself, shedding of blood, because life is in the blood. He underwent the full penalty due on them. Again, we see that in Isaiah 53. Right? He was punished for our sins. God punished him fully, and he was satisfied. He accepted the wrath that was poured out on Christ. He accepted that in our stead. So God can be the just and the justifier, right? He's not corrupting his justice by just forgiving us. Crime was committed. Sins were committed. Justice must be paid. Jesus comes as the proper substitute. He's the mediator of the covenant of grace going back a couple chapters ago. And so in so doing, this is how he accomplished it. He made a real, proper, full satisfaction of God's wrath. And this is necessary to say because the Catholics were saying, well, that's just a legal fiction. You know, you need to be infused with righteousness. You need to be made righteous if God's going to declare you righteous. But how can you say it's not a legal fiction if you're not actually intrinsically righteous? Well, because Christ was. It's because Christ in his active and passive obedience earned righteousness for us. And because he was a sinless, spotless lamb, he was able to pay the debt fully for us. And he did so in a real proper satisfaction. And it goes on to say further that these things are all of God's grace. That these things, God is justifying the sinner and as a result, he's glorified. So out of the love and gratitude for when we realize what we've been forgiven of, how the payment's been paid in full, uh, that's where we glorify God with our bodies. Right? We've been, what, bought with a price. So our, that's our spiritual act of worship is to glorify God, to do these evangelical obedience, but those play no role in our justification. It just shows and validates that you have true faith. Okay? Um, any questions or comments up to this point?
Let's look briefly at chapter 4. Chapter 4, um, understanding the decree. God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect. And Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins, rise for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit does in due time actually apply Christ to them. Okay, again, word for word, when you look at Westminster and 1689, there's one word that the Baptist added, which is justified personally. And this is what the Congregationalists had. So the, the Baptists went ahead and added this word personally as well. God justified personally until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them. This is to say that everyone is going to undergo a, at a specific time, at an appointed time, when God will justify them. If they're elect, if they're effectually called, they will be justified. But it all happens at different times in every individual life. It, it can happen at different age, different times when you hear the gospel. Some people hear the gospel over and over and over again before it actually sinks in, before it actually bears root, right? And God is the one who does that. God did this. He decreed. He, he decreed to justify. Yet, we need to be careful with how we articulate that, right? We don't want to make the assumption, well, because he decreed before the foundations of the world, it doesn't matter whether we're justified in time and space. It doesn't matter whether we actually have faith to believe. And people were actually saying that and saying, yeah, well, you know, if God elected us before the foundation of the world, it doesn't even matter if you come to faith. And so this was, you know, this would, we would call this like some kind of hyper- super hyper kind of doctrine of maybe it's this Calvinistic understanding of election or something like that. Well, if God elected, it didn't matter then. Um, this is an understanding that, yes, God elects us. He will justify us. He will accomplish it, but he does it in time and space. He does it. The timing of the justification happens at the moment they believe. The person's not justified until the Holy Spirit in due time applies Christ to them. So Christ from the foundation of the world, uh, we've been elected. Christ comes and dies and makes the payment. But until you're united to Christ, that's when you're actually considered righteous. That's when you're actually considered accepted in the beloved. Right? Union with Christ. How does that happen? By faith. That's what the Spirit does in due time. Applies it to us. Right? We are children of wrath like the rest of mankind until that happens. Right? We were, you, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, right? such were some of you. You were this, but you were washed. Right? And it's only by God's grace that that has happened. But that is to say justification happens at the onset of when we believe. So we said as well, there, there is nothing about initial and final justification. There's just justification. The timing happens in the moment we believe. Okay? Any questions before we look at paragraph five? I have a question for Tom, I think. Um, I'm sure there was quite a struggling over some of this verbiage because of the Jews. Um, the elect, you know, always thought of as the elect only, but Romans, Paul in Romans really dispels all those issues. Mm -hmm. And so I can understand even why the Catholics 
especially with um, Philippians, where it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Mm-hmm. But again, that's, as you said, and I appreciate what you said about that, you're, you're confusing two issues. There. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so the fruit is something that manifests, it reveals itself. <clears throat> okay, that you, you have true faith, you have true justification, because we see these things. That's the, the things you do are not the basis for it, but it's the fruit of it. And so the Jews were so much, the Pharisees namely, the true Jews were those who actually embraced Jesus by faith and saw these works that they could do according to the law as their fruit, as their good deeds, as their evangelical obedience. But the legalistic Pharisees were those who were trying to say, no, you still have to do all these things. This is how you maintain God's favor. Um, and they, you know, they rejected Christ. And Jesus would tell them, the reason you're rejecting me is because my word's not within you. So um, hard to hear for those who think, you know, well, we're the chosen people of God. Um, but those who are faith, right, are those who have faith like Abraham. He's right. We can look at, we can go back and say, okay, Abraham was like, we can say the, the, not that no one was saved before him, but it's the model of justification. Uh, saved by having faith in Christ, right? He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That, that's the idea here. Good, so let's look at five and let's go ahead and just read it here and we'll notice some of the, the differences. I want Let's read uh, paragraph five here. This is dealing with justification and remaining sin in the believer's life. So it says, God continues to forgive the sins of those that are justified and although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure. And in that condition, they usually do not have the light of his countenance restored to them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. Okay, so this is, this is a good understanding. And for us who rest in God's sovereignty, especially when we find ourselves maybe in trials and affliction, uh, when we might question what's God doing, this, this paragraph helps us too to understand a little bit more of what God might be doing in those times. Yet you're still in the family. And, and, and so this is something that we see uh, that is, if you compare it with Westminster, again, almost word for word the exact same. One sentence that is added is, uh, after displeasure, it says, and in that condition, they have not usually in the light of his countenance. So that's another phrase that just, are, they're picking up from Savoy Declaration. The Savoy Declaration just wanted to say it's in that, dis, in that condition there of unrepented sin where God then will show fatherly displeasure. So it's just, it's just being a little bit uh, more uh, articulate about what they want to pinpoint. So let's look a little bit about this in detail. Let's, someone turn to Matthew 6, verse 12, please. Matthew six twelve. So we'll just look at this one part. God continues to forgive sins of those that are justified. Okay, so someone read Matthew six twelve for us. And forgive us our debts 
Good. So right here, what we see is we see Jesus instructing disciples who are believing in him, right, who are part of the family of God. Notice they're praying, my father, right? So, so you're part of the family, yet you still need to say, Father, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our debts. And so part of the believer's life, as they're adopted into the family of God, implies that they are to seek forgiveness for sins. It implies that though we're still here in the flesh, though we might be justified, declare righteous in God's sight, we still wrestle with the sins of the flesh. We're still in the flesh, and we're not going to be perfected until we're glorified. And because of that, we have that remaining sin within us, right? The Romans 7, that makes us want to do these things that we know we ought not to do. And we wrestle with that sin, and sometimes when we fall on that sin, uh, the believer doesn't lose his justification. Rather, he might have God's fatherly displeasure. But it shows God continues to forgive sins, even those that are justified. So the, the understanding or the, the, the hyper, I guess, nature here that some might assume, the misconception might be, well, if we've been justified, it doesn't matter if we sin or not if we confess our sins. Or if we've been justified, we can just, already, we can just keep on sinning. So grace may abound. You would say, by no means. No, that's the wrong understanding. In fact, the scripture commands us to continually to confess our sins. Right? So the moment uh, we believed, Christ fully took the judgment. There's no more judgment for sin on you, even though you will keep on sinning. Christ paid for your sins, past, present, and future. It doesn't give you license to just keep on sinning. Christ paid for them. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? Justification has been settled. You cannot lose it. However, when you sin, you still need to confess your sins. Do you have a hand, Cosmo? Yeah. Could this be one of those You have, you know, obviously, you have, you know, to God's grace, He's giving you faith, and you have passed that threshold, and now you're His child. Uh, uh, but in the beginning of that endeavor, there is still, you know, you don't have the experience, you don't have wisdom of walking with Christ. So it's, it could be one of those, could this be looked at as one of those. Uh, less and more wisdom according to the goal? Um, let me see if I can understand what you're asking. Um, so the more you grow in wisdom as a believer, the more you see your need to confess? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, God is... Sorry. So it's a, basically you start at a 100% fuzzy view, and the more you walk with Christ... The, you know, the clear, the image gets clear and clear as you walk with him. And then, you know, as you move through life, he directs and redirects your paths as he sees fit. Right. You see more and more of him. Right. I think so. And as you see more of him, uh, maybe put it this way, as you walk more in line with him, you're going to see your failings more as well. You're going to see your sins. And so the continual need to confess them. Um, and so that's going to be the case, right? As we grow more and more in the image of Christ, hopefully we're sinning less, but we're more and more aware of the sins that remain. 
uh, right? And so we should be growing in this progression of more Christ-likeness, but we still have that remaining sin, and we should see that all the more and hate it all the more for the need to confess, right? That's an interesting thing you said. You used the word fuzzy in the reality of God's grace. Some of us are going to die with very fuzzy vision. Others will have more corrected vision. That's the, the beautiful thing of this phrase. There's not a, a benchmark of a, an eye test, so to speak, that qualifies. Yeah. And so one of the, you know, one of the things in which we see uh, for the believer's life that's ev- that makes evidence his true conversion is the continual repentance. It's part of his lifestyle. Repentance is the fruit of true conversion. It's the fruit of being given new life. It's the fruit of being justified, right? So we are to pray. You're part of the family. Our Father who art in heaven, right? Give us this daily, daily bread. Forgive us our debts. You're praying as children, right? And you're seeking forgiveness from a loving father. The difference there is you're not seeking forgiveness uh, from a judge now. Now he's your father because he's been already declared you as judge. He's declared you right and because of Christ. And so, you know, another text we have is uh, 1 John 1 verse 7 to 9, it says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there is a continual need in the believer's life to repent. And it's not just a one-time thing you do at the moment you're saved. Yes, you're, you're to repent. But because we have remaining sin in us, because we will continue to sin in this life until Christ comes again or we're glorified, and we die and are glorified, um, we will have to uh, confess our sins. But there are times we don't. There are times we hold on to it. And that's why the next sentence says, even though they can never fall from a state of justification they may fall under God's fatherly displeasure because of their sins. So once you're justified, once the gauntlet's been, been uh, banged and said, you are righteous, you're not guilty because you're united to Christ, that's a one-time deal. It's been said and done. You're, you're not going to lose your justification. However, if you are justified, it says, believers can't fall under God's fatherly displeasure. I, I like that word again, fatherly. Right? He's not your your judge who's displeased in you, who's going to condemn you of wickedness and, and give you the, the wrath and judgment for your sin. Wages of sin is death. That's what you deserve. Uh, eternal torment in hell. Right? The verdict's already been paid. It, it's, been, it's been paid by the blood of Christ. All the wrath no longer rests on you. It's been fully absorbed in, the ra- in, in Christ who absorbed it for you, who paid for it. It's been finished. So the condemnation is, you're righteous, but when you do sin and you remain in that sin, God can show you fatherly displeasure. Cosmo? Can someone with a lifestyle that's obvious, uh, that obvious opposes God's moral law, black and white, clearly, be one of those people that already 
centered in this you know, path and still be safe and go to heaven? So, you know, the Bible tells us we know them by their fruits, right? So fruits are going to be manifest. And fruits we see, one of the fruits is repentance of sin. Now, a believer could be in a prolonged time of, of maybe uh, of a fall and refusing to repent. But a true believer will come to repentance eventually. Um, before, they, before they die. Yeah, I, I would say so. Um, there might, you know, it's hard to give def- like, to just say, okay, well, you know, they just committed a sin in the car, and then they died in a car crash. You know, if they're resting in Christ, God knows their heart, they're going to be saved. Um, but if they're willfully rejecting him and running in sin, and there's no fruit, then I think that's merit to say we question whether you're truly justified at all. Um, Yeah, that, that's their maybe habitual lifestyle. Luke? Just to comment on that, that's why, I mean, given the context of Cosmo just stated, that's why church discipline is so vital. Right. And that's why membership's important. So you know who's part of the body because you can't get cast out of something unless you're part of something. So, yeah. Um, and so, yeah. It's, it's, and that's a loving thing, right? Church discipline isn't just something to say, oh, we're mean and we're kicking you out. It's, it's to say, we're trying to get you to repent. Realize your sin and what it's costing you. Uh, repent. It's for restoration. Um, just a proof text for this. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Right? If, if we've been justified, that's true of you. Um, but if you sin, you're not going to lose that, but you might fall under the fatherly displeasure. So fatherly means you're part of the family. You're not going to be kicked out of the family just because you, know, you were in sin. Uh, you have no fear of judicial wrath. Uh, but you can fear fatherly displeasure, and that can be painful, right? Um, Psalm 89, verse 31, it says, If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not remove him from him my steadfast love. Right? And that's, that's how a father treats a son. If a son is in open disobedience to the father's commands, right? The the father doesn't say, okay, I have nothing to do with you. You're out, you know. No, he's going to discipline him so he can direct him in the way that he should go, right? That's what the rod's for. It's to do the discipline. And and the rod isn't something we rejoice in. It's something that's painful. It's something that hurts, but it's necessary and it's done out of love, right? So that it would teach them, here's a far less pain and realize it now than the pain that it could cost you later. Right? And so we see this in Matthew 26. We see uh, that one of the ways God can give displeasure is to cause you to have this bitter remorse over sin. And in Matthew 26, remember Peter, he just transgressed over and over and over again. 
uh, before the rooster crows, you will deny me. And he remembered that, and he did it, and he wept bitterly. That was the remorse. He felt the displeasure of God upon him. It was a remorse for his sin, and that remorse is, uh, is meant to lead him to repentance. And we know, what did he do? Right? Judas wept too, but he didn't respond in repentance. Uh, Peter did. We remember uh, Hebrews 12. That might be a good passage to turn to. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 5. He says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For, if, for it is for discipline that you've endured. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom, God do, whom his father doesn't discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. So he says, if you're in sin and you feel the discipline of the Lord, and that might be by giving you hard, difficult trials. It might be in different things to, to draw you back to repentance, to realize the consequences for your sin, and to bring you back so you can confess and, and walk uh, in accord with the Lord again. And we see that in, in David's time as well. So let's read the next little paragraph here, or sentence. It says, In that condition, they will not usually have the light of his face restored to them until they humbly themselves confess their sins, plead for pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. So this is true of David's life, a man after God's own heart, who trusted in God by faith, who we could say was justified, but committed gross immorality and sin, adultery, murder, Right? And did David confess right away? He didn't. And so he writes in Psalm 51, you can, I'm not going to read it all, but you can go and read that. You can see the, the torment of God that he felt in his soul. He felt abandoned. He felt like his, his, he was breaking away. And then in Psalm 32, after he confesses his sins, he remembers that state and he's given eyes to see what God was doing out of fatherly displeasure. In Psalm 32, verse 5, it says, Blessed is a man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there's no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So that's the, the idea of there was the fatherly displeasure. He didn't have the light of his face upon him that was, that was restored him to uh, repentance. But then he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He's, there were still earthly consequences that we know that he dealt with. But he was forgiven. The favor of the Lord, his, the light of his face shined upon him and he felt that. No longer did he feel like he was, his bones were drying away. But God in his providence had gave David an, a time of prolonged suffering and feeling this to chastise him, to bring him to repentance. And sometimes that's true of us too. But that's a mystery. We don't, we're not going to be able to understand and, and discern when that's happening. We, we know God, if we're legitimate children, God does discipline those whom he loves. 
But if we live in unrepentant sin, if you're a true child of God, you will feel miserable in that state until you repent. That's what the Holy Spirit does to you. And the more you don't do that, the more you harden that, that conviction. And we do this because we're commanded to repent. This is what the believers to do. We're commanded to repent, confess our sins, be faithful and just to forgive us. And so when that happens, it's meant to draw us to repentance, to humble ourselves, confess our sins, beg pardon, and he will renew our faith and repentance. Right? David prayed, restore in me the joy of my salvation. And that's what the Lord gave him upon repentance. Kevin? set free yeah yeah and and the nice thing about this that we realize is he was part of the family of god he wasn't going to be lost but god used this to draw him so that he can feel free once again to draw him to repentance and that's a fatherly discipline it's a good thing and that's part of what conforms us into the image of christ and sometimes that's what trials in our life are is Maybe there is unconfessed sin that we're living that we need to confess to him and not saying all you know, trials are the result of our sins, but some are. And so in light of that, we can look in God's sovereignty when we don't understand what's going on is to maybe look in the mirror and say, is there unconfessed sin in my life? Now, one of the things we're going to see today in, in James is the importance of coming to prepare ourselves to worship and receive the word. And one of them is to put off the sin. And so that's why we try to have a time of confess your sins, make your heart right, remember the gospel, and prepare to worship our great God and King. And really, that should happen the day before or sooner. But we still try to make it a time set apart for that. Okay, we're out of time. So let's go ahead and pray. Did you have a question, Richard? Or a comment? Let's go ahead and pray, and uh, we'll get ready for worship. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the doctrine of justification and how we can rest in Christ. And then, out of love and gratitude, we want to seek to live for him. So, Lord, we thank you that even in our sins, that you treat us as a son. That you do not abandon us or kick us to the curb, but you pursue us, and pursue us even sometimes in discipline. Lord, help us not to run from those things. Help us to receive and be quick to repent and turn to you. So, Lord, we thank you for Christ in his name. Amen.